Hello and welcome to the Good Friends of Jackson Elias, a regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Albert. And I'm Matt Sanderson. And this episode, we're looking at how cults work and how this might be reflected in our games. Before we get into all that good stuff, however, what is going on? Well, it's getting near that time of the uh, the half year again. Blasphemous Tome 5.5, it's coming. So the fanzine that we produce for all our Patreon backers. Uh, we produce two issues a year, um, a print copy in December and a PDF copy in July, or sometime thereabouts. Look at us getting all technical and moving into the digital age. <laughs> yeah, so if you're backing us by the end of July on Patreon, we will send you a PDF of issue 5.5. This is going to have all new material in it. Some of it is going to be the bits that we couldn't fit into our last print edition. There's going to be some brand new material, including a new scenario that I've been writing and playtesting called The Murder Shack. I've been through a couple of playtests so far, and it has gone brutally. Uh, yes, a TPK or your money back. Also, if you're a backer, you can also enjoy our lockdown episodes we've been putting out during the COVID-19 lockdown period. We've talked about various books and films and TV shows that we've enjoyed. Again, as always, with some reflections about how we might use them in gaming. How was your run around the woods that you were saying you were going to go for your <laughs> the end of the last episode? Yeah, <laughs> I'm up to about 5k now. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. I, I want to ask 5,000 watts. But that's an in-joke, you see, because this is yeah. for everybody, and that was just for backers. So if you want to know about that, the special fitness regime, if you want to know about that, you need to uh, you need to get on there. The horror. The horror. And Matt, you've also been appearing on other shows? Yeah, yeah. I got, I got an invite from an old friend of mine, Ian Wilson, who was one of the players and then GMs for one of my very first RPG games, back in the day when I used to do a lot of Vampire LARP. And invited me onto his podcast, Roll to Save, where we had a roundtable discussion of folks from the game that are reflections on Vampire and how we've been playing it through the years and showing some good old memories. And yeah, just had a damn good time. We're going to be uh, playing Paranoia tomorrow ahead of a discussion about that uh, that game, Good Citizen. So yes, have a, have a happy pill. I'm intrigued by the phrase, reflections on Vampire. <laughs> well, unless, unless you're a La Sombra, it shouldn't be a problem. So I've heard of the good friends of Jackson and Elias, but what about the good friends of Jack's con Elias? What? What's this? Well, this is something that's come out of the blue, and it's all rather wonderful. So our fantastic listeners on our Discord server spontaneously decided that we need a virtual gaming convention with everyone still, well, everyone, most people still on COVID lockdown. Obviously, there aren't physical conventions going on. So, yeah, they stepped up and used our Discord server to organise this virtual gaming convention over the weekend of the 10th to the 12th of July. And where do we find out more about this? Well, at the moment, it's all taking place on our Discord server, but sometime before this episode goes out, I will set up a page with links to all the documents that contain further information on our web server on blasphemousterms.com. I'll link to this from the show notes as well. Or if you're on our Discord server, take a look at the planning channel there for the Good Friends of Jackson Elias virtual convention. And there are a number of pinned documents on that channel that have got all the details as well, including game pitches. And speaking of game pitches, you're running some games, aren't you, Matt? Yeah, I've picked up four ones I haven't run for a little while, actually, so it'd be nice to go back and revisit those. Three Call of Cthulhu scenarios and a Cult Divinity Lost scenario as well. And we have games running around the clock. Our listenership is international. We have quite a large listenership in Australia, it seems, and New Zealand. So we have people there running games in Antipodean time zones. We've got people in the US, obviously in Europe. So, yeah, it's, it's running around the clock for those three days. And we have... Other GMs who've stepped up to offer stuff, including John Hook, Joe Trier, and Cuppy Cup from the Ain't Slave Nobody podcast. So we would like to say a big thanks to Orbital Axolotl, uh, with a great name, for doing a lot of hard work behind the scenes to get this organised. Well, and, and coming up with the idea in the first place. So yeah, thank you very much. 
And Scott, you've been putting pen to paper. Well, I've been putting virtual pen to virtual, oh, well, Google Docs, I guess. But yes, I, either way, right. I, I wrote something. Yeah, and you've written an article with a, a most intriguing title. Can I read it out? Please do. Lovecraft, artificial intelligence, and the limits of human imagination. <laughs> it really should have three exclamation marks at least. <laughs> it not. should. But, but what does all this mean? Well, I had far too much fun writing this article. It is a fairly playful piece that is, yeah, about Lovecraftian horror, the whole concept of uh, the alien being corrosive to human sanity, and how all this links in with the weird shit that we're now creating through artificial intelligence. And it goes off on all sorts of tangents because, well, that's what I do. It ended up being quite a substantial article. It's about 6,000 words, I think. And it is appearing in issue eight of Trebuchet magazine, which will be coming out in July, uh, available online, and it will be appearing in good news agents and bookshops around the world. Uh, so do take a look there. I mean, you've, you've seen some issues, Paul. Uh, how would you describe Trebuchet? It's an arts magazine, we should point out, not yeah. a role-playing game magazine. I think yes. that's the first thing we should say. So it, it, it takes a broad perspective on various arts themes, and each issue has an individual overall theme. Issue 8, which is the one that we're talking about, the one coming out in July, has a theme of contemporary surrealism. Kalis, who publishes it, describes it as exploring a variety of unique visions on current creativity and wild thought. And he also described it wonderfully as a 180-page ticket to esoteric artistry. So if all of this appeals, then you can pre-order it and get a discount. I'll put a link in the show notes. But if you pre-order it, it costs £10 in the UK instead of £14, or £15 worldwide instead of £19.50. And with the way the pound's doing at the moment, that might be quite a bargain if you're abroad. <laughs> But if you don't want to jump into this site unseen, if you want to see what Trebuchet magazine's like, there is also the offer whereby you can get a free digital issue. Again, I'll put a link in the show notes. If you use the code Corona2020, which again, I'll mention in the show notes, you can get a free digital download of one of their back issues. And Matt... Do we have news of Kickstarter? Oh, yes. Yeah, my, my bank account is going to be screaming at me next month. Doesn't it always, though? I've been waiting for this for a while. The new Cult Divinity Lost Kickstarter has come. So this is the second one that Helmgast have put out. It features uh, not one, but four products in the basic lineup for the project wow. this time. Yeah, they've got a GM guide, a scenario collection, a weapon deck. So quite a nice, handy resource, actually. Say, hey, you've got a machine gun. Here's a stats throw a card at someone from across the table. And also a selection of maps and layouts of locations. For, again, primarily for GMs to use as visual aids. Me being me, I've contributed one of the scenarios to the first scenario collection. So, yeah, looking forward to seeing that in print. Excellent. Cool. And there'll be more about that in the show notes, right, Scott? Yes, yes, there will be a link there. So when is this Kickstarter finishing? Yeah, it goes through until 8pm BST on Thursday, July the 2nd. There's a few additional stretch goals that they've met, which makes this quite appealing to back, because there's some stuff that you're not going to get elsewhere, including a scenario collection. It's only three scenarios in there at the moment, but of stuff that they considered too, um, too controversial or too extreme to publish through normal channels given this is the company that had to censor all its artwork before Cult went on main distribution, you can get a kind of idea of some of the stuff that they've got in this book called The Forbidden, quite appropriately. So if you're listening to this episode fairly soon after it comes out, there will still be time to back the Kickstarter, but be quick. And now on to our main topic, cults. Now, way back in episodes 118 and 119, we talked about religion in Call of Cthulhu, and we did sort of touch upon cults there. We did mention cults in passing and how they might differ from conventional religions, but we didn't really focus on them. And obviously, cults are such a huge part of Call of Cthulhu that we thought it would be interesting to go back to that topic, but not talk about the classic Call of Cthulhu cults, but talk about cults in the real world, organisations that people consider to be cults, and how all this relates to Call of Cthulhu, whether it even does relate to Call of Cthulhu, and the way we perceive cults in the mythos. 
I do want to offer just one caveat, which is uh, this is obviously a contentious subject and one that has got perhaps really strong meaning for some people out there. We are not experts on this field at all. We're gamers. That's the lens that we tend to see this stuff through. Uh, we've done some research, but it is fairly superficial research. So we may get stuff wrong. We may bring biases in that you might not agree with. Take what we say with a very large amount of salt. We're not experts on anything, really. No. <laughs> no. I, I, I've tried to explain this to people before, because people mm. assume that when we write about stuff that you know, we actually know about it. And yeah. the research that I think most writers do for what they write is superficial at best. And also quickly forgotten, I sort of describe myself as being a temporary expert in very narrow things. And then six weeks later, I've forgotten every fucking thing I learned about it. It's wonder how anybody wrote anything before Wikipedia existed. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Because <laughs> that is the gospel truth for pretty much everything, isn't it? No, I know it's not, but yeah. <laughs> I, default, I default to YouTube a lot of times, actually, watching documentaries on there. Oh, that's a good source as well, yeah, mm. yeah. And podcasts, actually. So yeah. for this topic, I will mention a podcast that I found by putting the word cult into my podcast viewer. And it came up with a podcast called Cults. Oh, yes. <laughs> I was yes. like, okay, <laughs> that kind of fits the bill quite nicely. And I listened to quite a few shows on there. And it was, I don't know beyond what they said, but it seemed well-researched and very well-presented. Yeah. Yeah. Some interesting stuff. And a huge range of different cults that they cover. Incredible. Yeah, I'd, I'll second that recommendation. I'd listened to some of their stuff a while back and was very impressed by them. We're not going to be as in-depth or as well-informed as they are. This is a gaming podcast, and we're focusing on the gaming aspects rather than actually trying to present really what cults are. Yeah, and also we're not going to necessarily go into great depth about any one single organization or cult mm. as they do in their shows. We're more looking at how cults operate and how that might be reflected in the gaming. But I think yeah. looking at real-world cults serves some purpose in that, in that we can then gain some level of I don't know, verisimilitude or be more convincing in, in the game. And also thinking about how NPCs might become cultists. Because if you're going to, as mm. Keeper, you're portraying an NPC, perhaps might be a cultist. And it's good to sort of get some understanding of what's in their heads, I think. How they work and how they operate, where they sort of sit in a, in a cult structure and so on. So, you know, hopefully some of this can be useful. And also, I think in general terms, some cults are just fucking weird. And if you're looking for inspiration for how to bring weirdness into your games, it can sometimes be difficult to match just how strange the real world is. Uh, 100%. Yeah. Yeah. Because you're talking about largely religious or mystical beliefs. And there are things that you know I was just listening to today or reading about today and it's like, well, if I were to put that, I probably wouldn't put that in a game because it just seems too, not beyond, well, yeah, beyond belief. It seems like if the person told his followers this thing, I would think, well, none of them are going to believe that. Yeah. But sure enough, they did. Well, and also some of the things that people just plain do. I mean, we'll cover a lot of examples of that, I think, during the discussion. Yeah. But I remember the first time I was reading about the Heaven's Gate cult years ago. And I mean, just everything about that cult is one seething mass of what the fuck. But one of the details that just leapt out at me was that they had really strong prohibitions against sex. They believed in abstinence very strongly. And as a way of enforcing this, a number of the male members voluntarily castrated themselves. Mm -hmm. And I, I just remember reading that sort of thinking, why the hell would you do that? I mean, what, what would lead you so strongly to believe that? And then they're not even the only cult that's done that. No. It's just so, so weird. I found a lot of that because mm. I researched a bit on Heaven's Gate, thinking whether I'd look at them or People's Temple and ultimately fell on the People's Temple side because there was a bit more to talk about. But I think a lot of where it came from for the, the abstinence in Heaven's Gate was rooted in Applewhite's homosexuality, that he found a lot of that topic to be very much abhorrent to him. Um, he didn't even mm. have relations with his fellow cult leader. I can't remember her name. 
because they alternated between Bo and Peep and Dee and Toe, but I can't remember her real name off the top of my head. But yeah, she I know she expressed misgivings that, oh, why isn't he doing it with me? And it was because he had such deep-seated uh, problems of his own, and that's, that's where it ultimately stemmed from. Well, maybe before we get into this we should mm. think about what actually is a cult what how are we defining this word cult because it, it seems to mean a lot of well does it mean a lot of different things to different people i don't know yes yes it does and i think if i think we could spend the rest of this episode and we might even end up doing this spend the rest of this episode trying to define just what a cult is because it seems like there are as many different definitions of cult as there are people who try to define it some people are bringing agendas to trying to define well not just what a cult is in notional terms but what religions or what organizations qualify as cults and the whole thing is an absolute mess so if you're talking in absolutely general terms a cult is just simply a religious organization goes back to the Latin cultus and just refers to everything that is involved in worship, ritual, emotion, liturgy, and attitude. So if you go by that, basically everything is a cult. Oh, every religion is a cult. But is that true? Well, I think the answer is no. And there were historically kind of official cults, you know, Catholic cults, mm. such as the cult of St. Olaf. That definition of cult a doesn't seem very useful and b seems a bit historical now i mean the definition i've got here a relatively small group of people having religious beliefs or practices regarded by others as strange or as imposing excessive control over members and that's one that sort of seems to resonate with me more so yeah louis Theroux just recently was talking to rose mcgowan on a great podcast that he does about the children of god yeah and because she, she grew up as part of a cult. She's an actor who was influential on the whole Me Too movement and the Harvey Weinstein case and so on. But Louis Threw said something very interesting about cults. He said, it's almost a thought-stopping word. Once you define something as a cult, how are you ever going to see anything positive or good in it? It's a tabloid word that stops you teasing out anything interesting. I think later he said it's a pejorative term. And I think there is that. I think once you, yeah. you know, you can start talking about an organization, oh, yeah, that's kind of interesting. And they say it's a cult. And immediately, okay, tabloid headline, it's a cult. We kind of, it falls into a, a big box of badness. Whereas there are lots of organizations, uh, they might be charities, they might be religions, they might be businesses, they might be whatever, that we can look at and say, well, some of the way they operate is a bit like a cult. But that doesn't make them a cult. I've read a number of books and articles in preparation for this. And I mean, for example, there was a French book that was published in the 90s called Soul Snatchers, The Mechanisms of Cults by a French academic called Jean-Marie Abgral. And he very clearly laid out that you know, he thought there was a real difference between a cult and what he referred to as a coercive cult. You, you have organizations which perhaps share a lot of the commonalities of cults that aren't malevolent, that aren't toxic, that don't coerce their members, that they are perhaps small unorthodox organizations that are brought together by common beliefs that outsiders see them as weird, but they don't attempt to control the lives and thoughts of their members, and they aren't toxic in the way that we consider a lot of cults to be. And I, I mentioned this, I think, when we were talking about religion in the mythos before, but I'll bring it up again. There is a fantastic book, which I really recommend to anyone who's interested in this, called Spying in Guruland by William Shaw. And it was a book that was published in 1994. He's a, a British journalist and writer who basically decided to join a lot of cults or organisations that were referred to as cults. And he joined them for a month or so, and basically immerse himself in whatever it was that they believed to go along to their meetings, you know, live with them or whatever, to try to understand them from the inside. The conclusion that he came to was that a lot of 
Well, for a start, there are a hell of a lot more cults than you might think. We only hear about the really notorious ones, but there, in, there are lots of tiny cults out there that may, you know, just be like a dozen people who, who get together in a commune or something like that. But also, the, you know, he came to the conclusion that the majority of them are actually pretty benign. And that we remember the really horrific examples from the media because, well, that's just the way the human mind works. We focus on the bad. We focus on the dangerous. But that whole pejorative aspect of calling something a cult, yeah, we immediately think, you know, jump to thinking about, say, Jonestown or Charles Manson or something like that. But that is a tiny fraction of what cults are. I mean, I'm going to go with the fact that cults are malevolent. I think when we're talking about cults in this podcast, particularly as we're talking about Call of Cthulhu, then we are definitely going to focus on the malevolent and coercive cults. But I do want to perhaps keep coming back to sometimes the fact that there are a lot of organizations that are branched as cults that aren't malevolent. I don't think they're cults. Well, this is, I think, where that terminology becomes problematic. To my knowledge, and you might be able to counter this but nobody's going around saying do you want to join my cult none that you've met anyway no. <laughs> i think there's a reason for that because the word means a malevolent organization if malevolent's the right term you know it's a derogative term because it's a sinister organization but I think that's something that has come about perhaps in the last 50 years, that connotation of cults in that respect. Oh, sure, sure. And I think, yeah, if you're looking at sociological or anthropological interpretations of cults, back to, say, cargo cults, for example, they aren't what we consider to be cults these days is a very, very broad term. And I think, you know, I mean, this may sound like me nitpicking, but I think if we're talking about Call of Cthulhu in particular, Back in the days when Lovecraft was writing about cults, say, in The Call of Cthulhu or some of his other stories, mm. those cults would not necessarily follow the same template as a lot of the cults we're talking about now. A lot of the more recent ones are perhaps something new that has developed over the years. Well, the cults that Lovecraft wrote about, like East Terrick Order of Dagon, you know, the New Orleans swamp group i don't know what you call them, the cult of cthulhu mm. and so on i think they were fairly sinister organizations and he was basing it on like witch cult in eastern europe and his, his research into those kind of cults i mean not that they were necessarily real cults but sinister yes but not necessarily functioning in the way that we'd see cults functioning now in terms of the the recruitment and the mind control and so on not a lot of those you know, sort of horrible aspects that we associate with cults these days, that they're horrific for different reasons. I mean, however they're kind of sinister or horrific, that's, that seems to be the defining aspect. So how, how about you, Matt? How, how would you define a cult? I struggled with this a bit because, again, in my research of having a look around various different examples of cults, there's no one-size-fits-all template. And there's no mm. one single definition. And there's also different types of cults. And I think they have their own definitions depending on their own goals, their own structures, their own motivations. It's a very woolly term to me because mm. you're trying to pin one single term on something that's very varied and multifaceted. But I think I tend to agree that it does have that kind of negative connotation. There are cases where it's something that something could morph into, not necessarily what something starts as. Something can start mm. off with very good roots, at which point you wouldn't necessarily call it a cult. Um, mm. And then it can morph over time for one reason or another, and it can become something significantly more unwholesome, at which point it then suddenly gets the brand cult. It's difficult for me. I don't, I don't see one single definition of it. I think it's, it's too much of a, an overarching banner to pin down to one thing. Yeah, I'd agree. I think it's something that can be pinned on retrospectively. You know, when something bad happens, you know, taking a, a case in point like the Wild Wild Country documentary on Netflix, which is a great show about the Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh and his group there. I mean, at the start, it seems like a pretty ideal society. It seems like they have really good objectives. But down the line, things go bad. 
I think the People's Temple is another good example there. They perhaps started out as quite a benevolent organisation, certainly doing a lot of good work in the community, trying to promote racial harmony, and were really quite a progressive organisation. Fast forward 10, 15 years, and they're shooting apostates in the back with automatic rifles and forcing people to drink poison at gunpoint. Mm Mm-hmm. And to some extent, you could lump the Heaven's Gate group in there as well, because they certainly had no malicious start at the beginning of their activities. Sure, the the doctrine that they were espousing was a bit weird, but some of the teachings and some of the self-help that they promoted was, was certainly nothing unwholesome, just weird. You could probably look back to some historically very, what we would perceive as evil regimes and say, well, in their early days, they did some good things. I mean... Not to pick on, you know, I don't know, <laughs> let's not go there. But, you know, there, there are definitely organisations that that would, would count for. But also, there's the fact that, you know, as, as you've mentioned, the word cult is a pejorative. And I think it's something that various people will attach to organisations as a way of almost slandering them or out of a sense of fear. It's it's really quite hotly debated. I mean, for example, organisations like the Latter-day Saints and Christian Science, which are considered to be now mainstream religions in the US and other parts of the world, when they started out were very much seen as cults because you know, they were small, they were strange, they were insular. And you, know, you have organisations in the modern day that government groups and so on in, say, France, target as being cults like Krishna Consciousness or the Jehovah's Witnesses, which, again, a lot of people would see as being mainstream religions. That whole idea of what qualifies as a cult and what isn't is subjective and is, I think, sometimes even weaponized. Yeah, I think particularly if you've got a very, let's say, conservative Christian majority, if there are other small groups sort of springing up that differ to them, they may well cast them in the role of a cult because they they feel they're a threat, I guess, or they're misunderstood. I was poking around trying to understand who the various anti-cult organizations were, the people who categorize and target cults, and what their motivations were. And as usual, my research was pretty superficial, but there's an interesting article on Wikipedia about anti-cult organizations, which types of groups try to categorize cults and, and help cult members or try to attack cults in various ways. They quoted a study by an academic called Jeffrey Haddon, and they basically broke it down into four main groups. Like you say, it's religious groups for a start. You see this an awful lot in perhaps the evangelical movement in the US, where they basically see any other religion as being heretical or dangerous, particularly other Christian saints. Mm. But any other religion in general is is suspect, and if they're at all weird, then obviously they're a cult. There are also secular groups who see cults as being assaults on autonomy, on personal control, on identity and stuff like that, and combat them on those terms. Then there's apostates. So there's former members of a cult who have perhaps fallen out with the cult and now want to warn people against the experiences they went through. And finally, there's what they referred to wonderfully as entrepreneurial opposition. So these are the people who basically do it professionally. So the people who write books on the subject, have radio shows, mm. run deprogramming organizations or whatever. Make podcasts. <laughs> yeah, that kind of thing. <laughs> so yes, there are all sorts of people who might brand an organization cults for all sorts of different reasons. And sometimes it's because they have an agenda. Yeah, I mean, that's why I wouldn't want to represent them really and and what they say is a cult and what isn't because if you're going to do that where do you draw the line i mean you've got david ike saying the world is run by a cult of like lizard people and and all that madness some people saying this thing i mean i'm not yeah i wouldn't want to sort of give that a voice truth hurts that's the problem yeah (laughs) but you do get some really quite large organizations trying to do this. So, for example, the French Parliament in the 1990s created a special commission to identify cults. 
This was in response to the various incidents involving the Solar Temple. So, I mean, the Solar Temple were a worldwide cult, and they had mass suicide events in Switzerland, in Canada, and in France. And the French authorities were so concerned about this that they thought they'd better take action against cults or identify what dangerous cults were. So they created this commission to try to identify who the various cults within France were. And again, yeah, they swept up a lot of organizations in there which other people might dispute, like the Jehovah's Witnesses and Krishna Consciousness. As a result, they basically monitored the activities of these organizations just in case they posed a danger to the French people of the state. Kind of reminds me, because you mentioned beforehand about the Church of Jesus Christ of the Latter-day Saints coming under flack at one of the kind of early point in their career. Existence, timeline, however you want to put it. And a lot of that, I think, stemmed from what I was reading into. It was basically the mainstream Christian church disagreed with their view on polygamy. So it was something Mm. that they found that was, oh, that isn't good by our playbook, so therefore it shouldn't be good by anyone else's. And then starts not as like a smear campaign, but definitely vocal opposition against their their practices. In this show, I don't really want to talk about any organisations that I don't think fit into the bracket of sinister cults because I don't see what's to be gained by that. Um, yeah. yeah, before we had this show, there was we had quite a bit of discussion about what what groups to include and what groups not to include. Yeah, I mean, I think anything we, we talk about in this show, we're kind of putting forward that other people think they're a cult. I, d- I don't know what's to be gained by that. So I'm not going to mention any organizations that I don't think are sinister or kind of cult-like in this in this show but i i just raised that because i think it's a big part of unpicking what a cult is and the difficulties involved in doing that and i agree i think we should concentrate very much on what are referred to as either destructive or coercive cults but yeah that is a subset of what cults are I read an interesting article online that I'll link to from the show notes. Uh, I think it was actually on the How Stuff Works website, where they broke down all sorts of stuff to do with cult recruiting techniques and stuff like that. But they did try to define what set apart a destructive or coercive cult. And the, the different criteria were deception in recruiting, use of thought reform methods, or you know, what you might consider brainwashing, isolation, physical and or psychological, demand for absolute unquestioning devotion and loyalty, sharp unsurpassable distinction between us and them, inside language or jargon that only members fully understand, and strict control over members' daily routines. Yeah, I think there are plenty of organizations that, you know, for example, the French government identified as being cults that don't qualify in, in those terms. But yeah, I agree that for this podcast, these are the organizations that we're going to be discussing. Well, I don't think you do agree with me because you've, you've named these groups, so you clearly don't. But if they're an X card for this podcast, I'll be touching it on using those names is kind of what I'm saying. The point I was making was that organizations like the French government and anti-cult networks target these organizations as being cults. But for the purposes of this podcast, I don't think that we are talking about those organizations. That I was trying to define the terms as, you know, concentrating very much on the, the malevolent ones. Yeah, I think let's stick with the malevolent ones. And likewise, going touching briefly on the how do you define a cult? I think it's very much through the lens of the person using the word or the group using the word, and that they have their own yeah. they have their own agenda by using that particular word. Yeah, I think it probably does fill their agenda. You're right. Yeah. Do you mean like the agenda of the French government by using that term? Exactly. Like I mentioned about the church as well, it's very much it's seen from a particular stance, and that they want to achieve a particular goal by giving a group in opposition to them that word. Yeah. I mean, that kind of goes back to what Louis III was saying about it being a tabloid Yeah, exactly, exactly that. A trigger word, yeah. yeah. And it's an, a reason why a lot of organisations fight against that term. I mean, you know, for example, the Church of Scientology has put an awful lot of money and effort you know, over the last 50 years into trying to shake off the label of being a cult. And there may be organisations that the three of us privately consider to be cults that we aren't necessarily going to name directly in this podcast, for reasons of protecting our asses, but that doesn't mean that they're not cults. Yeah, the Tory party sees all. (laughs) Oh, no, for sure. I mean, there are cults out there that actively are recruiting people as you walk down 
big streets in London. So you have had someone say, do you want to join my cult then? <laughs> yeah. Well, no. <laughs> More like, would you like a free personality test? They might want to do that. <laughs> I'm not sure if I had something similar to that happen to me, actually. I'm not sure if whether it was one of their fundraising efforts or what. Very, very persistent. This fellow with this perpetual grin that went from ear to ear, who handed me, he was kind of saying it's a good luck charm, and then was basically saying, right, now you can give me 50 quid and sign away in my book. I think, no, here's your, here's your charm back and I'll, I'll see you never. So why are people afraid of cults? We've said it's a pejorative term. It's It's a tabloid thing that causes a almost like a, a knee-jerk reaction what is that fear i think it partly stems from that some of them have this such bad pr problem as it were also the bad bad rep <laughs> that you mention the word cultist and at least to many call of cthulhu players you suddenly think robes knives shotguns and coming at you and killing you in the middle of the night so i saw a recent film jackals that very much uh, fits into that mold as well mm. that it's almost perceived as oh they're a visceral threat they're, they're the evil boogeyman ah but maybe also on one level, if they're a bit more informed, it's, say, if a loved one or a friend of yours joined a cult, they're almost, in some cases, depending on how the cult operates, they could just suddenly disappear from your life, that they, they fall into this yeah. very, very isolated group that cut themselves off from the rest of the world, and you just never see mm. them again. Again, going back to um, Heaven's Gate, there was an example of a group that turned up to one of their talks in Oregon when they started off in the 70s. Ten people then just walked away from their lives to follow these people, and it became quite a media sensation at the point. It's like, where are these, where have these people gone? They've just mass disappearance. And it's because they'd gone off to follow them. I'm not sure if they were using Bowen Peep at the time, but basically the, the pair running the cult, they'd gone off to follow them and learn more about them from their teachings. And to do that, they cut all ties. Yeah, I think that is the fear that they're going to take away somebody from my family or somebody I love, and they're going to, typical phrase, brainwash them, and they're not going to be the person that I know anymore. Because I don't think it's a fear, it's not a personal fear, is it? It's not a, a fear that it's going to get me, I don't think. Unless they come for you in the middle of the night with a knife and a shotgun. Yeah, I mean, I don't really see that as, as a cultist thing to do, but. I think, yeah, you're right that there is that fear that they will indoctrinate someone you care about and mm. I, I think that particular aspect of it is probably something that is very much a 20th century fear in cults and and possibly one that still echoes to the modern day but i think we see cult-like organizations now online that uh, use some of the same techniques or affect people in the same way but the the schisms that they put between people are more subtle ones that they still create divides, they still alienate people from their families and friends and or, or create new social structures based around strange beliefs. But they aren't necessarily relying on physical isolation quite as much as the cults that we remember from, from the 20th century. Are you kind of thinking of people watching YouTube videos in their bedrooms and getting obsessed with some sort of cause or yeah. semi-political or, or religious kind of cause, you know, as we see with kind of terrorist recruitment and so on? Terrorist recruitment, certainly, or even kind of stranger ones like the whole QAnon thing that started up in the US a few years back, which sort of started out as, a, I think, a trolling attempt on 4chan and has just spiraled into this absolutely bizarre cultish political movement where people sort of look for hidden signs in news broadcasts, in presidential broadcasts and stuff like that, and every little stumble over a word or something in the background or whatever is a hidden message which is there to the faithful as a call to action and it is absolutely fucking bizarre but it, it also has very real world consequences in terms of it's starting to now disconnect people from their existing social circles as they're investing more and more in this and I don't know, I, I'd argue that even things like the anti-vax movement has got elements of this, that these are sort of strange beliefs that, non-scientific beliefs that people cluster around that then create social divisions between them and all friends, family members and stuff like that and and create this sort of insular movement with a sense of social isolation. It sounds like that QAnon group put on a pair of sunglasses, saw a billboard and it just read obey on a big white background. <laughs> it does seem like that. Mm -hmm. I mean, the anti-vax thing's an interesting one. I, I guess 
the whole kind of conspiracy theory thing, lots of strange beliefs and a kind of a, a willingness to see signs and portents in all sorts of like little things, like you said. Are they a cult? I'm not really sure they fit yeah. the, the cult that we're talking about. I guess the point that I was trying to make was that we perhaps need to broaden our definitions of what a cult is as social structures change through social media, through the internet, and that I, I think cults can become more notional things. But I certainly think what you were saying about you know the conspiracy theories and, and the, the typical thing of watching YouTube videos or whatever it is, you know, and, and getting influenced. The fear there that we have, whether you know whether we broaden our definition of cults to include that or not, it's kind of academic, perhaps, because the fear there is that that's going to invade somebody's mind. It's not necessarily going to geographically take them away to some South American compound where they follow some cult leader, but it's getting in their head and changing that person and, and putting ideas that I don't like in that person's head. Going back to what I said, taking away, although not physically, but kind of taking away in some way that person that's a part of my family or that is close to me and, and changing them in a way that Almost feels like isn't of their volition. Turn them into someone I don't recognise anymore. Yeah. Fundamentally, if that person were to have a realisation and actually just join an accepted religion or something like that and become religious, then I'd, I'd kind of feel that's different if it feels like it's their choice. But when it's the cult, it almost feels like something that isn't their choice that's being imposed on them. Yes. They'll walk into it willingly and, and this is about how cults work, I suppose. That was one thing that I stumbled across in my research, that one definition did reference that it was, even going back to some of the root words of the word cult, was that it was tied to a particular location. That it did seem that one of the criteria that it had to meet at one point was that it was a group that met in a particular place. That it was a, as you say, mm. your South American compound, or maybe not necessarily a place that was fixed, but definitely you moved around as a group. Mm. But I think there are also other reasons why people are afraid of cults. And these are the big tabloid stories that we all know. The big shocking events that have taken place with cults or cult-like organisations. When I was thinking about this, I kind of broke them down into four categories. I, there may be other ones that you can think of. So, I mean, there are the ones that commit acts of murder or mass murder. So the Manson family is obviously the one that planted this this concept in everyone's head. But I think, you mm. know, perhaps more shockingly later on in the 90s, you've got the own Shinriko cult in Japan, which let off these canisters of sarin gas on the Tokyo subway uh, to try to commit mass murder there. You've got, obviously, the suicide cults like uh, the Solar Temple, uh, the People's Temple, most notoriously, and Heaven's Gate. You've got those that basically just get into violent conflict with the authorities, like the Branch Davidians. They weren't really a suicide cult, they weren't really murderers, but they got into this armed conflict with the authorities that just led to loads of people dying. And then you have the sexual abuse. Hmm. You mentioned Rose McGowan earlier, and she was involved with the Children of God, or raised within them, which later changed their name to the Family International. And more recently, you've got that weird cult that hit the news a couple of years back, uh, Nexium, which was this cult that started out as a, a sort of support group for women, and just <laughs> became this uh, sort of... Well, they, they ended up being prosecuted for people trafficking because they were basically taking people into sexual slavery. So, yeah, I think when people think about scary things that cults do, when they think of that word cult, these are the things that come to mind. Yeah, murder, suicide, and sexual abuse. I think Wikipedia, as the font of ornology, lumps them in as one overarching group just calling them destructive cults. Mm. But that's a reason why you might be afraid of cults even beyond the idea of someone you love being recruited, or perhaps even you being recruited, which is the fact that you may end up on the underground one day and someone lets off some, some poison gas because their cult leader told them to. So most of these cults seem to have charismatic leaders or named leaders you know most of these cults the the leader seems to stand apart so what kind of person leads a cult you know what is it about somebody that actually ends up leading a cult in almost a, uh, a flippant response to that the reaction that comes to mind for me is actually an episode of the simpsons 
where a, ah, uh, where, a, where a cult sets up in town and it, I can't remember if it's Homer or Lisa stands up against them. But at the end, it's he's revealed as like this man on a bike, and it's very much you have to be someone that's kind of on one hand showman, and on the other hand has a bucket load of charisma, because you have yeah. you have to hold a crowd, you have to be able to spout your crazy ideology to them, and then for them to swallow it, and that involves charisma and performance. Yeah. I think as well, the other common factor with cult leaders is that they are almost all textbook narcissists, mm. uh, well, mm. malignant narcissists. And so these are people who are basically trying to feed some deep insecurity within themselves, some deep need by getting constant validation from the people around them, by exerting control on the people around them, and just trying to protect this very fragile sense of self by making everything around them part of themselves. Uh, one uh, bit of research I was looking at was saying that one of the cult leaders suffered low self-esteem, mm. and this was a way of kind of countering that. So because of low self-esteem, they kind of try and push the pendulum fully the other way to kind of uh, overcome that, I guess, and to, to make themselves seem like something wonderful. This leads to all sorts of weirdness. There is a cult that I won't name here for legal reasons, but their founder is quite well known. And the cult has basically created official biographies of him that (laughs) are increasingly grandiose in the things they ascribe to him, the sort of miracle cures that he's performed and the the wondrous temporal deeds that he's performed and is basically just almost described as being this superhuman in every possible respect. And you know, kind of, as an outsider, that just none of this stuff is possible. But it is almost holy scripture within the cult that all these things are true. Jim Jones is a perfect example of that, where he claimed to Mm. be various embodiments of anyone from the Second Coming, um, Akhenaten, Buddha, Father Divine, who was a real-life inspiration for him, Lenin. It seems to be that a lot of the leaders do espouse to having some part of the divine in them, that they are a true reflection of a either God themselves or at least a part of God. Yeah, I was thinking exactly the same. I was thinking about Jim Jones. I was thinking about some of these other cult leaders. Mm. And it seems like there was a point when Jim Jones told his, his followers, you know, we've all got divinity within us. We've all got, we are all, you know, like a bit of God or we've got the potential within us. But I've got a bit more of it than you have. And that seems yeah. to be a common thing with cult leaders is, you know, we can all attain godhood, but if you come to me, I've got more of it. You know, if, so if you hang around me, almost by osmosis, you'll get more of it. Whereas when we think of, I mean, I guess we could look at traditional Christian religion. We've got bishops and so on. They're not really viewed in the same way. I don't think they're a, a shepherd to their flock or whatever, and they've got more specialist knowledge. Perhaps they're more versed in their religion, but they're not seen as a, they're not typically, certainly in my understanding, they're not seen as a, you know, that, that you just sort of hang out with them and you kind of absorb it like a cult leader would. That seems to be integral to a cult leader. There are certainly plenty who have put themselves forward as being somehow divine. David Koresh mm. was another one, that they are the second coming or the embodiment of, of some holy force on earth. I think that is especially dangerous because as soon as, as a cult member, you accept that, what are the limits on what you're willing to do for the divine? I mean, why would I follow you if you're just the same as me? I mean, what's the point, you know? Except I don't think you necessarily, to be a cult leader or the leader of a destructive cult like that, I don't think you have to be put yourself forward as divine. I think as long as you can say that you have access to secret knowledge, Hmm. that you are better informed than the others, or you have some pipeline to the divine yourself, you don't necessarily have to be divine. You, You just have to have that divine knowledge. Yeah, you have to be able to provide access to it. Yeah. That access to it comes either because you you know, you have more of it inside you or you are that doorway to it or that there's, yeah, like you say, there's there's hidden layers of knowledge that, you know, I was reading about somebody coming from one faith to another and they were having um, a baptism into the faith and they were saying, well, once I've been baptised, you know, will I be able to access more knowledge? <laughs> and the guy was saying, no, this is just like, 
you know the Methodist Church or whatever, and say no, you're just like you're just like everybody else. Um, you don't get you don't get access to the secrets. I guess in traditional Christianity, there's the Bible. That's your access, isn't it? Most people have got that sat on their shelf. Well, except, I mean, Christianity does offer something else, which is that if you accept Christ as your personal saviour, you'll be granted eternal life after death. You're not granted something within this world, but you are granted the promise of something to come. But you do get cults that go that one stage further in what they offer their followers that say that if you follow the practices that the teacher has laid out, that you know if you do everything right, if you're a good person and, and follow all our tenets, that you will be granted superpowers effectively. You'll be, you know, you'll be able to read people's minds. You'll be able to levitate, that kind of thing. Faith healing which is a remarkably easy thing to fake if you have someone on the other side that's working with you. Again, t- a tactic of Jim Jones. Mm. He had his PAs pretending to be uh, paraplegic. He would lay his hands on them and they should miraculously get up and run through the audience and start causing a fervour and lots of cries of hallelujah and so on. I say showman. A high persuade skill. Mm-hmm. Or at the very least, a high fast talk. And charm, mm-hmm. I yeah. think, potentially potentially intimidation, any of those interpersonal skills. At least two of them have got to be really high, I think. This is a really big topic, and we've barely scratched the surface of what we plan to talk about. So, I mean, this is definitely going to be at least two episodes and probably more than that. We'll take a break at this stage, and we'll come back next episode, and we'll talk a bit more about the mechanisms of cults, how they recruit people, what they believe, and what followers of cults are actually expected to do. Thank you. Thank you. Well, as we'll discover next episode, one of the key techniques that cult leaders use in order to bring people in is love bombing, telling them how wonderful they are. And so I think we'll get a jump on that and tell you all how wonderful we think you are. Everyone who listens to the podcast is obviously the very best kind of person and better than anyone else out there. But still better than them are obviously other people who back us on Patreon. And we would like to sing their praises and specifically sing the praises of a few new people who have given us their offerings. Yeah, I'd like to send some love out to Christopher Nitkin, because I've heard he's a really nice guy. Also, some love and cultist robes going out to Jack L. And all praise and hail to Pretending to Be People, who are a lovely podcast who we will link to from the show notes. And thanks and praises to Jer Austin. Hope I've got your name pronounced correctly. And also praise be to Zion J. And praise be to Brother Christopher Bettencourt. And a megaton of love. To Peter Barr. You see, this is this is where I show I would definitely be a really crap cult leader because I, I've, I've run out of love. So I'm just going to say, hey, thanks very much to John Casey. And may the universe align behind Andrew Schiffel. And finally, a big thanks going out to Bailey in Aurora. And uh, again, I think we just have to have it almost every time. Hopefully we've pronounced everybody's names correctly. If you want us to repronounce them, then let us know the correct way to do so. And speaking of which, yes, uh, we're contacted by someone whose name we mangled horribly in an earlier episode. Uh, So apologies, and I shall try once again. So thank you very much to Jacek Brzezowski. Okay, well, make sure you take your robes to the dry cleaners, because you're going to need a fresh set next time when you join us again for our follow-up episode on cults. So until then, it's a good night from me. Cheerio from me. And a farewell from me. Hello? Blasphemous Tomes.com. Mm-hmm.